Episode number 31 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschild. In this one, I'm revisiting my interview with author Ryan H. Walsh, whose book Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, was the subject of a June 2018 episode. You can find it at themedianarrative.com or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Well, months after that podcast, I was fortunate to be asked to moderate a panel held in December 2018, right around the 50th anniversary of the release of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. There was a day-long celebration of the anniversary in Cambridge, Massachusetts, featuring Ryan Walsh and three of the Boston-based musicians who played with Van Morrison back in 1968. Alan Sandals organized and orchestrated the events. In this episode, you'll hear a few excerpts from the day. You'll hear each musician describe their first encounters with Van Morrison, how one of them talked his way into the recording studio, and why one of them chose to stay in college rather than join Van Morrison's band. If this episode whets your appetite for more, please buy Ryan's book. It's the authoritative, comprehensive take on all of this. Some of the audio from the panel is a little quiet. I've done my best to even it out. As we begin, the first voice you'll hear is Alan Sandals kicking off the outdoors portion of the event in Cambridgeport, where Van Morrison lived that year. And then, in order, bassist Tom Kilbania, drummer Joey Bebo, and saxophonist and flute. John Payne. The purpose of this little get-together is so people can feel what Green Street was like in 1968. And I want to start out by asking either Tom or Joe to describe why they spent so much time on this block and what, what they were doing and where they were going. When, one day I came down and took out my bass and Van says to me, he says, hey Tom, he says, I had an idea for a song last night in bed. He says, get your bass. So I got my bass and he starts singing Moondance. So that's where it started. It started here. And I, and I think that's probably one of the most uh, in, in, incredible parts of this. And I used to, uh, we used to practice electrically over at uh, uh, John Sheldon's house on, on Berkeley Street. And I used to walk from Berkeley School of Music, all the way down to John Sheldon's house, because I didn't want to spend 35 cents for the bus. <laughs> so, you know, but it was it was a it was a great time. I spent a lot of time here that summer, uh, walking uh, up and down the streets, and and it's a, a lot of great memories for me. It was a critical time in my life. Uh, my parents had just told me they were going to uh, not pay my way through school anymore. I had to support myself, so I was really bummed out, and I needed a gig really bad. So I'm walking down the street thinking, what am I going to do now? I need a gig, and Tom jumps, dives by, <laughs> says, Joe, you want a gig? And I said, yeah, with who? And he said, with Van Morrison. And just like Tom and John, I didn't know who Van was. He wasn't on my radar screen. And he mentioned, uh, I don't know if you mentioned them or Brown Eyed Girl, he said something. And I said, oh, no, not, not that music. <laughs> I thought it was teeny bopper music. I thought it was kids' music. I was, you know, an artist. I was a jazz musician. I was above all that. But I needed a gig, and we went. Uh, we put, put my drums in the car, and we went up to John Sheldon's house. And I met Van and set up, and we played the first set. I remember the first tune we did was Gloria. <laughs> Very challenging. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and Brown Eyed Girl. And I wasn't too thrilled, but I needed a gig. But then we did Domino. I never heard this tune before. We started playing domino. John had that. 
Bo Diddley be going, and I, we started playing. I loved that song. I just loved it. And uh, so I became a Van fan in that one rehearsal. And I got the gig, luckily. They didn't throw me out in the street. So it was great. And we rehearsed for uh, a few weeks, getting tunes, enough tunes to, to uh, do the gigs, and then hit the road. Well, I'd met Tom at a, at a jam session, a jazz jam session, and he told me about this guy named Van Morrison, who I had no idea who he was. We got this, we got this gig, we're gonna go play, we're gonna make a record, we're gonna go tour Europe, and he's looking for a flute player. I don't particularly remember having played flute at that jam session, but I guess I played a little bit, mostly a saxophone player. And um, so I said, okay, and I asked around, a couple people told me, no, he's a real guy, he's a guy. So I went into the catacombs, which was not just in a basement, it was the basement below the basement. <laughs> and there was maybe 30 or 40 people there. This is a guy who played Brown Eyed Girl, and it was a big hit like a year ago. And I quickly found out how quickly and how fast you can go down in the music business. But um, so I went in, I saw Tom, Tom recognized me, and um, we started talking, and then Van came out and kind of gave me a limp handshake and sort of didn't say anything and walked away and I went like, oh, this is, this is just Tom's idea. They're not looking for a flute player. This is his idea and Van has no interest in me at all. So they get up and they do the first set. I didn't particularly like the first set, probably because I was a little bummed out at my reception and I was thinking of leaving. But I said, well, I'll straight the end of the set and Tom came up, luckily for me, Tom came up right afterwards and kept talking to me during, all during the break. So I didn't leave and then Van came out and um, um, said, do you want to sit in? I said, sure. So I got up there, and um, he started playing. The minute he started playing, I sensed something that I hadn't sensed before, which is there's something very big about him as a being. But anyway, um, he started singing, and um, I played, I, I listened a little bit, and then played a couple of flute notes, and somehow I knew he heard what I was playing. He heard exactly. He was there, and he was listening to everything I played. Now, in the three months I was with him, he never ever told me what to play or how to play or when to play. But he sure as hell listened to me. He heard everything I played. And I think that, I like to think, I can't prove it, that he, his phrasing, he phrases with the um, sophistication of a jazz singer in terms of what he does with the beat and, and his phrasing and rhythms. And I like to think that the rhythms I was playing on the flute were influencing the rhythms he might be playing. But I don't know that. But anyway, at the end of... End of the first song, I went, wow, that was, that was great. What was, what was that? And then he starts playing Brown Eyed Girl. And I didn't, I used to go to a place called Hazen's in Harvard Square, and they used to play that in the jukebox all the time. I liked it, you know, but I didn't know who sung it or what it was. And so he starts singing the song, and it's, it took me a few seconds to realize he wasn't covering someone else's song. This is the guy, what is he doing? He's sitting here with 30 people drinking coffee in that sub-sub-basement when he had a hit song a year ago. So um, I played the rest of the set. He asked me to come back the next night. And I came back the next night, and then that night he asked me to join the band. And I was thinking of going back to Harvard and finishing up my degree, but this looked like a, something that might be more fun. So I said, the heck with that, and, um, and I ended up with him. That, the rest of that's another story. After a few more gigs that summer of 1968, Tom Kilbania and John Payne went to New York City with Van Morrison for the Astro Weeks recording sessions. Van wanted them in the band, but the record company and producer Lou Merenstein 
had a different concept. John Payne starts off that story. It was gently broken to us that we weren't going to be on the record. They said, well, you're just going to be kind of, kind of around digging the session. So you didn't want to quite come out Lou Merenstein and tell us that we weren't going to be on the record. Because so. uh, I think Van's original idea would be to have us on the record, but he got overruled. But So um, the first session we got to, and Tom and I were there, and uh, I remember just being in the control room, just being blown away by how, how good. They not only got whoever, I'm not, I'm not even sure who picked the musicians. I think it was probably Larry Fallon, that the arranger uh, probably was the guy who did it, but I don't know, because um, he was in that scene. He picked not just great jazz, not every great jazz musician could have played on that recording because they might be stuck in their own style. They might be stuck in this genre of this is how you play, this is how you play, and they're not used to the idea of reacting to what's going on. But these guys, um, Jay Berliner and guitar, if you listen to his licks, these counter lines he's playing are unbelievable. The beginning of Beside Me, Beside You rather, the licky, the thing he plays, the beginning of that, I'm getting chills right now just thinking about how good it was. And he invented that lick. I remember, he's, I remember him saying, listen to this, what do you think of this? And they all went, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So they're playing, but meanwhile, I was in agony because I wanted to be out there. There was, they had a flute player, but luckily for me, he wasn't some name guy. In fact, no one can figure out who this guy was. You've tried, we've all tried. Yeah. No one knows who he was. He was there, and he was good. But I didn't think he was better than me. <laughs> I didn't think he was worse than me, but luckily, if I thought he was better than me, you know. You were 20 years old at the I time. Was, right? Yeah, I, I, was, I was a little cocksure, I guess. I'd been playing flute a total of six months. <laughs> but that... But I've been playing clarinet since I was nine and saxophone for two years, and they're similar in terms of the fingering and stuff, so that's not quite as amazing as it sounds. But um, still, I, was, I just wanted to be in there. It drove me crazy. When they were playing Beside You, um, it sounded so good, but I almost went out of my mind being of, with agony that I wasn't out there doing it, because these guys, the way Richard and... and, and um, and Jay Berliner and Warren uh, Smith, the, the vice player, who played very few notes, but everything he played was just the right thing at the right time. It's unbelievable. And I met Jay and, um, and um, Warren again this, this May. I hadn't seen them in 50 years. You have that photo up. But that's, you have that up there? Yeah. But um, anyway, so I'm dying, and I'm going up to the producer and saying, I can play as good as he can. <laughs> I can play as good as he can. And the producer's kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, it wasn't paying any attention to me, I didn't think. So I did that, I don't know how many times, but enough. So I probably, probably eventually stopped. And then they finished the session, and, um, and they said, well, why don't we, everything's going good, why don't we do one more? So I said, well, let's do one more. Said, can everyone stay for one more and get a little overtime? I said, oh, sure, we can do that. And then he looks up and says, let's let Payne play flute on this one. I'm going, like, what? <laughs> Only problem is I didn't have my flute with me. But the other guy had a flute, and he was shorter than me. <laughs> that actually wasn't a factor. That's just to be funny. <laughs> so I, I asked him, can I borrow your flute? And he goes, oh, man, you know, I just want to go home. You know, I didn't really, and he just was whining about it, and I just would not take no for an answer. Thank God I had the guts just to just refuse to take no for an answer. Finally, he relented because he knew he was never going to end the conversation with me unless he handed me his flute. So I got to play his flute, and um, the track that they called, it was the last track of the first night of the recording, was Astral Weeks. I remember this recording, by the way, 
It's the first recording session I ever did. I was 22. I might have done a couple of things in the studio, just like vanity things, a couple of things, but not, I've never been anywhere near this. So uh, I remember this stuff very, very well, because it was um, the first time. But so I got out there and we started playing, and the feeling of playing with these guys, they just had this rhythm. There was no drummer, and yet the thing, if you listen to the Astral Weeks cut, it cooks. It burns, and it burns in a different way than most jazz burns or things without a drummer burn, but the way they were playing, the lines they were playing just, just complemented each other. They were answering each other. I noticed when I was, I've listened to it since, that I would, I would play a lick that would be similar to the guitar player's lick, you know, 30 seconds later or vice versa sometimes, but I wasn't conscious of that. So there's this, I'm improvising on flute, um, Jay Berliner simplifying on guitar, all below Van singing, and Van sings his mind out on that track. It's unbelievable. The emotion he puts in his voice is just staggering. And he's probably being enlivened by us, I hope, to some degree, because this is not something he'd heard a full rhythm section playing in this way, this particular way behind him. And it felt just amazing. It just felt amazing. And then they decided that the next two sessions, they, they didn't use the other flute player. <laughs> One disputed aspect of the Astro Week's history is the source of some of the bass lines on this landmark album. During the panel, I asked bassist Tom Kilbania about this, and John Payne and Ryan Walsh also weighed in. That was like a big thing for me because, you know, I always idolized Richard Davis and all of a sudden to be there in a room with him. And uh, uh, Van wanted me to show him the bass lines that I was playing so he could get a feeling of the songs. So I actually got to play his bass, <laughs> and that that was that was really great. But I I did show him uh, a few of the lines that I was playing, so he could get the feeling of the, the feeling of the songs. Uh, and and apparently he doesn't remember that no, according no. to uh, Ryan's conversation I, I, with. But I do, and it's absolutely Thomas. true. Right. I I can vividly remember. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but I can remember 50 years ago, Tom more than once going up and showing Richard what he was doing on the bass line. So. And, and Richard and Davis was playing 500 sessions a year, so he doesn't remember things. So that was, I didn't play another professional recording session for four years after those. So that, I, I'll, I'll go with my memory on that one. I'm just, Ryan and I, I bet are reading each other's minds here. Once we heard the Catacombs tapes, it right. sort of solved this, right? Well, yeah. I. Um, I asked, what, I, I interviewed Tom first before Richard, and I said, now the Boston bass player, he showed you the lines on a few of those songs, and Richard, I think, immediately said, no way! <laughs> Just shut, shut me down, I'm like, okay, okay. And then when, um, so to finally put, have the catacombs tapes drop in my lap, and put them on, headphones on, and suddenly I'm hearing Cypress Avenue with that same exact bass line that Richard would play weeks later. So I think that's a real vindication for Tom, and his memory, exactly. and his talent. The two of you went to New York for those recording sessions. Joey did not. So Joey, can you tell us what was going through your mind as, you know, didn't, didn't Van, there was a conversation one day, you were all sitting on the floor and Van had a question for a few of you. Yeah, it was at the recording studio where we were doing the uh, demo tapes at Ace Recording Studio. Van gathered us around him and said, I'm going to New York. I've got a, a contract or something's happening, I'm going to New York. He asked us how to go with him. But he asked, uh, I was um, my second year at Berkeley, so this was going to be my third year at Berkeley. I had just changed from my composition major to 
composition major, which was really cool stuff. So I had all this stuff to look forward to at school. So I told Van, sorry, I'm going back to Berkeley. Not for a moment did I not consider going back to school. Berkeley School of Music meant everything to me. I was one of the first, I was the first in my family to go to college. And to get a degree in composition and to go up Berkeley, uh, and I hadn't even begun what my next three years at Berkeley were unforgettable in terms of musicians I played with, the guys I, I studied with, the composition stuff I learned, just incredible. So um, I decided to go back to school. And I, you know, as much as I hear Van now and wish I had gone with these guys and wish I was at the catacombs with them, I do not regret going back to school. It was probably the best thing I ever did. But I missed a lot. I did miss a lot. <laughs> Ryan, I just want to uh, come back to you for a second. And since we've heard so much of these, from these guys about how this music has evolved, about what it was like to play with Van, you spent uh, a year uh, or, or more really in the phase of writing this book. What did you learn that most surprised you about, about the making of this record? whether it was learning about these musicians on stage or any other aspect of the album, uh, what was one thing you, you didn't know about that just kind of blew your mind? I would say in general, it, it, it blew my mind how much of a team effort it was and how kind of accidental a lot of the elements were. Um, you know, when you think about making a masterpiece, you might like lay down some nice carpets, light some candles, really try like, oh, we're about to make a masterpiece. This is like people almost are falling into the room accidentally. It's like, it's like if you painted uh, the Mona Lisa in the middle of a riot or something. Um, and you know, Van in interviews um, seems to be fond of taking sole credit for things. You know, I found one interview where he said, oh, Louis Merenstein, the producer on Astro Weeks, yeah, he was getting us sandwiches. Uh, that was his contribution and I thought, and then after all this I was like, well, that's so insulting because it really, um, it's, it's the Boston guys. It's his wife Janet helping him notate all of his demos. It's Louis Merenstein choosing the New York players. It's the New York players. It's all of these people working together um, and putting this together something lasting and beautiful. And, um, but that, what surprised me was that was not the myth that Van Morrison kind of peddled in the press for the, the following decades. And that's part of the story behind the Boston band that played with Van Morrison in 1968. Thanks to Alan Sandals for providing the audio from the day's events for this episode and to Ryan Walsh for writing that tremendous book, which, by the way, is now out in paperback. So if you want to dig deeper, read Ryan's book and watch the full two-hour video of the outdoor speeches and panel. I'll have the Vimeo link and some other related links on the show notes page for this one. One cool thing you'll see in the video is John Payne playing along with a track from the album. He brought his soprano saxophone and did some improvising near the end of the panel. Of course, due to copyright restrictions, I couldn't include any snippets from the actual album here, but go listen to Astral Weeks. It'll really help round out some of what you heard here. The theme music you did hear during this episode was composed and recorded by Matt Jensen. Subscribe to the Media Narrative podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoshield. Thanks for listening. 